blood-black nothingness begin to spin, begin to spin. Let's move on to system, system. Feel that in your body, the system. What does it feel like to be part of the system, system? Is there anything in your body that wants to resist the system, system? Do you get pleasure out of being a part of the system, system? Have they created you to be a part of the system, system? Is there security in being part of the system, system? Is there a sound that comes with the system, system? We're going to go on. Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, new film that's out, uh, Blade Runner 2049. Um, pretty fantastic piece of cinema. And um, when I went to see it in the cinemas, like, um, oh, by the time this airs, this is going to be probably two months after the thing actually came out. But uh, I went to see it and I was like, wow, this is something we've got to cover for the show. <laughs> yeah, this- absolutely. Um, I only saw it just uh, last week, but um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely pertinent. And the more I think about it, the more pertinent it seems. So mm, Definitely. <laughs> uh, so the, the initial thought that got me into thinking we should cover it was like, oh, this is really reminiscent of... Um, the rentist and exterminist futures that uh were in uh four futures in the book um yeah it's like well a lot of the setting has a lot of parallels to that but like the more as we've done our homework for this episode like it's like wow there's actually a lot there's a lot of philosophical stuff in this film that i think really relates to the the future of um future of our society like uh, and how technology relates to that and like what's going mm-hmm. what could happen with um you know like a in- encroaching ecological disaster and um changing sort of relations to technology and also just like continuing on the capitalist mode of production into this this future um Blade Runner 2049 has a lot of that yeah, yeah. I, um as far as i understand it uh the original uh vision of like Denis Villeneuve for this movie was to create something that was just incredibly bleak. Um, and uh, I think that the, this movie definitely does that. Um, it, it doesn't have the sort of glamor of the original Blade Runner. Um, it is like clear, like it, it's very in your face that this is a dystopia. <laughs> so if you want to talk about capitalist dystopias, like this is, this is a very, very clear one. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so for, for the listeners, uh, obviously from this point onwards, there's going to be spoilers. Um, if by the time this airs, you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, you should probably maybe pause right here and go and watch it. Um, yeah, it might be out like of me. theaters in like the very near future. So yeah. <laughs> please, gonna be going please go soon. watch the movie. Um, this movie has problems, and like we're going to talk about them. But like, it is a very, very rare uh, example of a very high budget um, science fiction movie having artistic ambition. 
Sure, um, yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the the film opens with this really wonderful kind of shot, uh, like kind of a flyover of gigantic arrays of solar collectors out in this barren, ashen wasteland. And it kind of pans over these kind of like what seem to be like indoor farms with like plastic roofs over them that you can kind of see little like vehicles or or bits of machinery shuttling up and down it's it just seems really really incredible kind of shots we've got this this car like a flying car kind of just kind of gliding over this landscape and i I think there might be a little bit of a title card here that says this is this is california in the year 2049 there is yeah um which is kind of pretty striking that like um yeah that like environmental degradation has set in to such an extent to make uh california look like um yeah this like gray ashen kind of wasteland yeah and i mean the thing is that in the original movie we don't see outside of la unless you take like the original cut of the movie where they're kind of like driving in the countryside afterwards but it seems like that was not the intention for the the original movie um and now we do get to see outside of the city right and this really reminded me a lot of um the way things were this summer in uh western canada western united states with all the wildfires that were happening and just the incredible choking clouds of smoke and just like i remember i was flying um home from vancouver and just making a short haul flight over the coast mountains and uh we got up outside of the cloud cover and I could just see in every direction around me that the smoke just went on forever. Oh. Um, and it was like, when I was in Vancouver, the first thing that I thought of when I was like looking out over the cityscape was like, this looks like Blade Runner. <laughs> um, and it, like when they, when they, when I saw this movie, I was like, oh yeah, like oh, it looks like really <laughs> looks like Blade Runner. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, this is a, this is a totally believable sort of picture of ecological collapse that is like happening around us right now um and i and i think this is a thing we might get into but you know it's uh i think this movie is very much about the anxieties of our our present moment um absolutely yeah yeah but that's the kind of destination we're heading to here where the passenger in this car is um our protagonist who's called k i think his, his full serial number is kd6 dash something something and he's a he's a blade runner he's a cop well yeah i suppose he's a cop he works for the lapd and his job as a blade runner is to hunt down and quote retire defective or rebellious replicants um the the lesson to take away from the original blade runner is about cops killing people they don't consider to be human (laughs) you know Mm. um and it's interesting that we open here with this scene where Kay arrives at this farm, this little outpost, um, and he goes in uh, into this little, like, little sort of farmhouse and meets this uh, kind of big, big hulking guy who um, you kind of get immediately that the guy is a replicant, um, probably one that's you know escaped at some point in the past and is about to get retired. Yeah, and... Um, uh... I think the 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 K code. I mean, it's it's obviously a reference to Kafka, um, who often referred to his characters as K in his his stories. Um, but uh, I think you could also see it as like a code name designation for killer. Yeah, true. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's it's also a possible mm. read of it there. Yeah. So there's a really interesting interaction here with, um, and it kind of sets up a good a theme for the the whole movie with this 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 replicant Morton. Um, as they, they do this little sort of exchange where it's it becomes clear that uh, one of them's going to die soon, um, and that Morton kind of asks like, what does it feel like to retire your own kind? And Kay responds that he he doesn't retire his own kind because my kind don't run. Yeah, which like that line is. Oh. Yeah, it's tight. Ah. <laughs> Bad feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, like, in the original Blade Runner, um, some of the replicants had, you know, they would realize that their memories were fake or whatever, whatever sort of thing happened to them, and then they would they would rebel outright and kind of really desperately try to get away. But we establish up front that Kay knows he's a replicant, and he knows that he's under someone's direct control and he just absorbs that into part of his identity yeah and so he doesn't go through the same um sort of emotional process of discovery that deckard goes through in the first movie right where he where deckard is pretty much hunting his own kind right he doesn't know it but like the the reason why that's able to work for deckard is because he doesn't know it mm. but in the case of k he knows that he's hunting replicants and it's the mental disposition he has that distinguishes him from the people that he hunts and i mean it's worth saying that like you know um you can you can definitely trace this idea of blade runners back to uh like cops or pinkertons who would hunt down escaped slaves right in 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 the u.s or in other countries where slavery was very prevalent um like you know if they tried to get to a non-slave state and then the cops would come hunt them down and and quote unquote retire them or return them to their masters so um you know that's kind of where this is coming from right this is a, this is a story about slavery but it's just that all the characters are white people very much um, so yeah um yeah. It's uh, it, it's a very transparent um, kind of thing that the the whole story leans on. So like Kay kills Morton, he um, like beat, beats him to a pulp and uh, takes like a scan. This is really kind of nice thing where they've got like a serial number on their eyeball, just kind of down into the left. So he kind of scans that and like tears the eye out of the guy's skull and brings it away. Um, but it's kind of as he's kind of heading to the car um, to. To, to head out, he notices a a flower left beside a dead tree, and this is kind of really striking image of this uh, this dead tree in this ashen soil, and this little yellow flower on it. So Kay asks, gets his drone to like scan the ground, and it seems there's something down there. So he just sort of uh, he, he when he calls in, like he calls to he headquarters um, to report to his the police chief, which I think he consistently refers to as Madam. And I don't think her real name is ever actually brought up, so I'm just going to call her Madam. I. Um, think it might be lieutenant joshi joshi that's uh, the one which in japanese just means boss <laughs> so that's why he's just lieutenant boss <laughs> that's pretty fantastic uh joshi yeah. right um he phones it in like oh i found this guy yeah good you know mission accomplished that sort of thing there's a really interesting bit here where uh like k has been injured in this in this struggle and he he says as much to joshi but um he then says oh don't worry i'll i'll glue it or something like he doesn't get any kind of healthcare or repairs 
There, mm-hmm. there, there is no um, like cop medic that he can report to in the station to get any kind of help for this injury. That that does kind of seem to be the case, right? Like, it, I mean, maybe he's just being that hard-boiled tough guy, but like, it also kind of seems like maybe they just—he's just so disposable. They don't want to provide medical care for him. I think that's the case. Yeah, which which I I, I think. The reason for that is with the upcoming scene with the baseline test. But um, before that happens, anyway, uh, Joshi says she'll send a recovery team to investigate whatever's under the um, under the tree, uh, clean up Morton's body and such. So Kay flies back to L.A. and we get this really, really incredible kind of visual of this huge, vast city of Los Angeles that's just like, you know, buildings that are packed to within meters of each other. Um, and then above those, just towering mega structures that are like incomprehensibly large. Um, yeah, and I think the thing that's really important about the shots that you get in this compared to the first movie is that we don't really get the kind of aerial shots that you have here in the first movie, where the flying car is above the city to this ele- elevation. Like, it's usually, like, you're looking a little bit down at buildings or you're looking, like, straight across at the tops of buildings or you're looking up, which is the much more common thing, right? But in this case, we're, like, way above the city Mm. and you have this sort of, like, the street level, um, you can see, like, the neon lights and all the glitz of the first movie, but it's, like contextualized within this just like sort of bleak vastness of concrete right and uh and 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 like i think that's a very strong like visual statement that the movie is making about its relationship to the first one right which is like yeah look like i mean the city was glamorous in a way in the first movie but actually when you look at it zoomed out it's really miserable it's worth mentioning i think we also see the seawall for the first time here we um, do, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea here is that the oceans have risen so much that Los Angeles is actually underwater um, because of global warming. Yeah, and there's like a huge, uh, like, 300-meter-high wall around yeah. the, the shore that just keeps out these pounding waves. And it's also just bucketing rain constantly. Like, this, it's this really ugly gray soup that, that, they, that we fly through as we approach the... LAPD headquarters, which are this like enormous towering sort of thing. Um, and what, what's happening is Kay is coming in for what is called his baseline test. And you get this kind of like this voiceover of like a voice that's interviewing Kay and he's asking him to recite his baseline. And it's this really, really upsetting kind of scene, this very harsh kind of thing where it's like this bizarre question and answer sort of thing, but it's like very mechanical. Mm-hmm. It's um, like... What what is it like to hold your child in your arms interlinked interlinked um, something 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 interlinked interlinked this it's really very strange um, I think what's being what's happening here is like he's being tested for his baseline emotional response um, like the the point is to prove that he hasn't deviated from the completely flat affect that he's supposed to have as this uh, replicant because like replicants are sort of like at least in the first movie it's like that they're they, they don't have emotions or something, but then it becomes that they're not supposed to have emotions. And so this kind of opens questions for me about, like, to what extent is that affected 
versus being inherent to the the replicants like is oh, yeah. is k aware that he's actually kind of playing a role in this um a performance of not being emotionally connected to any of the things he's just done you know yeah i mean i think that's totally plausible if you you know um just think about situations that human beings are in um where they're in this kind of alienated subjugated position and professionally do not display any emotions or have become like dissociated from their emotions right uh because of the abuse they've been put under and and seemingly k needs to on a regular basis retake this test and reassert that he is in that uh, situation yeah and i mean it's important to note that going back to the scene with morton the like the Voight-Kampff test is no longer necessary to identify a replicant because the replicants are given a serial number under their eyes. So you could just say, look up and to the left, and then that accomplishes everything the Voight-Kampff test was supposed to do anyway, right? So it's not about that, right? It's not about, are you a replicant? It's about, are you obedient, right? That, yeah. that is the, the question here. This is, this is a, a, uh, a check or an assertion of domination. That's what it's nakedly what it's about. Yeah, and um, it's it's kind of implied that like, or I mean, later it's it actually becomes clear that if uh, K or if anyone fails these kinds of tests, they'll just be retired. Um, they won't be re- rehabilitated at all. Um, an interesting sort of tidbit is that um, the the text of the test we hear in the film is actually a snippet from a much longer kind of, almost like a poem that's printed in, I think, the Blade Runner 2049 art book. Um, And that that poem is then, it's a kind of, based on, or it's an expanded form of a section of another poem called Pale Fire. And I think what happened here is that uh, the actor, Ryan Gosling, I think actually wrote this little bit of kind of character exposition and got it put into the film. And it's, there are some kind of entwined themes, but I'll, I'll link to a reading of that poem in the show notes. It's, it's, wor- it's worth listening to the entirety of the baseline test um, mm. to get some, because the, the scene in the film is only, uh, you know, a minute long or two minutes um, and is a, is a kind of a small section of this much larger kind of piece. But it sort of brings up like, so the, the book slash poem called Pale Fire does appear in this film as well. Um, mm-hmm. very soon actually and we'll I'll point it out when we get to that scene but um, it suggests that like and I think the fact that the interviewer tells him to recite his baseline it's possible that like this isn't a standard test that's applied to all replicants it's something that is personalized per individual right the script varies even if the procedure is the same which is weird because like if what they're trying to verify is that K isn't having emotional responses, but his test was he he chose a poem from the twentieth century as his baseline test. Then it's kind of like he has an emotional connection to that thing because he he has a copy of that book in his apartment, mm-hmm. and he felt closely connected to it enough to be to for it to be the basis of this test for him. But it's also used as a way of asserting that he's not emotionally responsive. And it's sort of like it points towards this theme of like this kind of disavowal of of emotion and of feeling. Um, Yeah, because it's possible that like the script was tailored to the personality he was given. 
right? Right, so it could um, be pre-programmed. It, it could be like sort of like a CD key that you get with your copy of some software, right? Like, I mean, to go way back in the day. Uh, but, like, um, I, I think it's like you said, it gets back to this thing about disavowal where it probably, for me, my interpretation is that it's probably related to the set of memories that he was given. Mm. Um, and so in the same way that he disavows his relationship to the memories as authentic, it, it's probably like there's that same kind of flat affect that's associated with um, his his script, his baseline, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, so having done that, um, Kay heads home to this little tiny box apartment that he, he shares with, um, shares with a, with a hologram AI person called joy, um, who it's, it's this really sort of strange set of scenes where, uh, he comes home and there's this disembodied voice that kind of is doing the kind of trad wife kind of thing of, oh, how was your day, honey? And this sort of thing. And he's, they're kind of doing this interaction. And uh, Kay then sits down at a, a like really dinky little table with like a, a bowl of like protein sludge in front of him, essentially. Um, and then Joy appears kind of dressed up as a kind of mid 20th century housewife and places like a hologram representation of like a diner meal, like a burger and fries over the uh, protein packet or whatever the, the hell that stuff is. I think mm. it's the same maggots that um, Morton is farming. Um, Most likely. And they're listening to some music from the 20th century as well. And Joy has this thing about like, oh, did you know that this uh, was the in the top 20 during November of whatever year? And it's, it's this really strange thing of like, these are supposedly two artificial people. Like we're we're supposed to believe that Kay isn't a real person. We're definitely supposed to believe that Joy isn't a real person. But they're having this kind of like very real interaction. Like they're they're really desperately pretending as if this is kind of real, so that they can extract some kind of emotional meaning uh, or just some, some meaning from the interaction. Yeah, it really brings to mind for me, uh, like you know, uh, one of the essays. I can't remember which one it was. Um, by uh, Jean Baudrillard talking about hyperreality, because you know Baudrillard's description of the McDonald's hamburger is pretty much what's going on here, right? Because <laughs> McDonald's hamburgers are protein sludge, right? Like that's just what they are. <laughs> it's just a slurry of various protein matter that has been ex extruded and mm. cooked, and and yeah, and like and yet there is all of the advertising and social expectations of nutritiousness and enjoyment and uh, and like deliciousness. Mm -hmm. that are overlaid on top of that protein sludge that give you an experience of having had a decent meal. Yeah. Even though you've just consumed protein sludge. So, like, that was kind of, like, Baudrillard's point there was that, like, the hamburger is a hyper-real object or the virtual aspect of the hamburger is something more than just what you are eating right like so uh so i think it's totally what's going on here in terms of like oh yeah i'm eating protein sludge but my hologram wife is uh like turning this into an experience i can feel some comfort from 
because it is overlaid with this image of something I might actually want to eat. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it seems to, um, it, it seems reasonable. That, it seems that like this pattern is repeated throughout this whole society that like their base existence is so grim and kind of ugly and there's like a constant fall of ash from the skies and this sort of thing. Um, and all the only food that's actually available is like uh, mulched maggots. Um, that it's it's necessary to layer on simulation and um, artificial kind of comforts on top of it to kind of uh, have any anything to kind of interact with. Um, because with, without joy there, this would be a very sad scene of just like chowing down on maggots, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it's important to remember like Kay comes home and Joy greets him as though she was this sort of idealized, uh, you know, 1950s traditional housewife. But it's like, oh, you've had a big day, right? Like, it's like, oh, it's, you know, welcome back from the job. But Kay's <laughs> job, like, Kay just murdered somebody. <laughs> yeah, right? it's not like, like he was down at the factory with, like, a, a cartoonishly <laughs> oversized wrench on his shoulder or something with a hard hat. It's, he's just gone, yeah. gone and killed a bunch of people. Um, yeah, so, like, that is... That's the sort of, like separation that's happening here right where she's behaving as though like the the implication is that Kay could do any kind of work at all and she would give him the same attitude of respect and subservience yeah that's true um but it, it definitely seems that like the i think this is a really interesting theme for this kind of movie where um there's this sort of interaction and tension between the authentic authenticity and artifice um, mm -hmm. And it kind of seems in a way that, like, this is a society that is so drenched in artifice that the artificial becomes authentic. Like, there's they, they are deriving very real comfort from this simulation. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. But anyway, so Joy is, like, anchored to this projection thing that's on the ceiling. But um, Kay, like, whips out, like, a, a present. He's got this, um, like, little kind of USB stick kind of thing called an emanator or emitter or something, I forget the exact term that was used, but he, he plugs it into a little thing on the wall, which is like a, almost like a thermostat. It's like the kind of central control unit for probably the apartment. And he seems to like download joy onto this little stick and he can carry it with him and she can move around. And she's absolutely thrilled by this. Um, this like artificial intelligence now is no longer anchored to one particular location. She can move around within the confines of moving with uh, Kay, but then again, she seems to be into him, so this, this seems to be a genuine step up for her, you know? Yeah, and like it's important to note that he says it's an anniversary present, and she's like, is it our anniversary? He says, He's like, let's I don't know. Pretend it, let's, yeah. No, he says, let's pretend it is, right? So it's like the, the just getting back to that idea of like imagined or virtual things being like a motivator. And, and yeah, like, and yeah, she's thrilled by it, but then of course she is because she's a piece of commercial software <laughs> who's always going to push you to upgrade to the next like plan or um, buy the loot boxes that uh, the the producers want you to buy right so yeah it's like I mean she seems genuinely thrilled by this and we'll see that like this has a lot of implications going down the road. Uh, but as far as it goes, it's totally imaginable that, like, this is just what she was programmed to do to upsell uh, Kay on, you know, what he was doing, right? There's a constant theme uh, throughout the whole film of, like, 
wondering whether Joy is actually real. Like, is she an authentic mind or not? And I'm inclined to think she is, but there's always that lingering question of, like, is it just that um, this is a part of her personality that's programmed, like you say, to uh, push for upsells? Like, you know, Kay undoubtedly went and spent some money on this little peripheral. Um, Yeah, well, it's implied, like, this was purchased with the blood money of killing Morton. You're right, yeah, because after his baseline, the interviewer says, you can pick up your bonus now. Yeah. And And it's 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 on the drive home. (laughs) (laughs) It's really weird. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it's like, oh, this movie... It's so really dark. fucking. It, it, um, it's it's screwing with my head pretty bad. Um, yeah. But now that Joy can move around, they kind of go out onto, I suppose, the balcony or something. And again, it, it's it's uh, bucketing down rain. Uh, but Joy does seem to like genuinely experience the rainfall. Like it's her first time ever being unanchored from this thing, and like you can kind of see the raindrops sort of coalesce on her skin. Like it's it's mm-hmm. really. This is like a very interesting scene because it's like. Because she's, like, projected light, the raindrops are probably passing through her, but her simulation absorbs the context of rainfall and renders raindrops on her virtual skin. I think that's what's happening yeah, there, you know? I wasn't sure if it was, like, the emanator had the ability to create, like, a slight amount of resistance so that the the rain could very briefly pull on her skin or... uh yeah, or or if it was like you said, it was just a projection. But you know, it, it, either way, like she's interacting with her environment in a way she's never been able to before, and this is a source of joy for her. Yeah, and it's it seems very real. And and then they they share a tender moment, um, like they're 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 lovers uh, in whatever way that like um, you know these these two minds can be, given their like disparate. Um, physical manifestations uh, but there's this really wonderful little turn here where uh mid kiss joy freezes and like a phone ringtone goes off and it's the boss <laughs> calling and it's like joy is the phone yeah like this it's this direct intrusion of um the dominance of the employer over the employed directly intruding and shutting off the 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 love interest or the the, the part the life partner freezing her mid pose and playing a little ringtone instead. And it's like, that's a hell of an intrusion. <laughs> yeah. It's a remarkable like, scene. You know, it, it is because, like, it becomes something, like, you know, horrific, right? That she's just frozen in place there. Um, and it, it's just like, it it's it's underlining the artifice of what she is right that like yeah. a, a a basically like a push notification is more important than her corporeality oh yeah it's, it's there's there's a lot to work with in this film isn't there um but so the phone call was about uh calling k into the labs at the the police station um where he he goes there and they've brought up the uh object that was under the tree and it's a trunk uh filled with bones and uh it's a there's a skeleton in the trunk and a little bit lock of hair and it's a the body of a woman who died in childbirth is the conclusion um and they're kind of speculating oh maybe morton killed her i don't know maybe he ate the baby or something but uh kay kind of looks looks carefully through the microscope and kind of does a little bit of fiddling 
and reveals that she's a replicant. Uh, there's serial numbers embedded in her bones. And this is like a big, this is a big thing. Like this is um, a replicant having given birth. Yeah. This is a world like earth shaking information. And I mean, and part of the reason Kay is able to figure this out is because he isn't sort of prejudiced by the disdain for replicants that everyone else on the forensics team has. Right. Yeah. This could have been missed very easily. Yeah. yeah it's like, Oh, well they're just, they're just, uh, you know, they're replicants. Of course they eat babies. Like that's just what they do. Right. But no, like he's not into that. So he actually is able to, to take a sober assessment of, of, of the evidence. Uh, so Lieutenant boss brings him or, Joshi Joshi is that the name Joshi yeah Joshi, Joshi. Uh, brings him to to her office and explains that this is this is a big this is a big deal and it could threaten the social order and then Kay has this kind of really nice line about like or so no she she wants him to get rid of the child like track track it down whatever and just just put an end to this whole thing that like we can't have this getting out we can't have anyone knowing that this ever happened and Kay says that he's he's never retired anything that's been born before mm-hmm. uh, and she asks what's the difference and he says he's i guess to be born is to have a soul yeah and like this is like starting to introduce these like theological themes into the movie um very sort of uh it's very very steeped in sort of uh judeo-christian ideas um and like it is like, yeah. Yeah, yeah i'm i'm sort of inclined to think that it's kind of a part of that is just it's it's a standard thing in storytelling, like Hollywood kind of thing. Like it's, I think you, you can interpret it as being like very much about this kind of like traditional family value sort of like mm-hmm. um, emphasis on heterosexual reproduction as a inherent good, all this, all that kind of stuff. But it's it's also likely that it's just a really good plot device too. Um, so I don't know. I'm kind yeah. Of, it, it's just the first movie seems to play a lot more on sort of like you know mesopotamian mythology as like a as as a source of of inspiration whereas this one is much more focused on like sort of judeo-christian biblical it is yeah biblical sort of uh, ideas yeah um, um, i think it's important to point out that like in joshi's fear for the social order um it's kind of clear that this is an extremely fragile social order like it's um the, the 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 main ideology of this society so like going going with the idea of like ideology being the prioritization and ranking of facts to determine which ones are more important than others and then using that ranking to justify actions the kind of the main ideology of this society ranks as one of its top facts the you know quote unquote fact that replicants are made not born thus they are not people and thus, they can be subjected to any abuse that you can imagine. And that's yeah. kind of, that's more important. In this society, that's a very important distinction. It's given primacy. Yeah, because replicants can think. So that's not a valid way to distinguish them from humans, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think she explicitly uses, like, the language of, like, a wall uh separating them and uh so you know there's a there's a lot of sort of like very clear callbacks in her language to apartheid absolutely Um, this is an apartheid she 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 is an enforcer and true believer in apartheid yeah definitely Um, yeah um and she'll be contrasted with other characters who have different sort of approaches to this uh emerging crisis um 
But what happens next? Uh, Kay then goes to the headquarters of Wallace Corporation, which is the kind of follow-on from Terrell, uh, from the original Blade Runner. And he's seeking information about this replicant mother. He brings the lock of hair with him. Um, and a guy there does a little scan. And he says that, like, this... Um, Oh, this this model of replicant is pre-blackout. There's not much information. So he has to go down into the deeper archives. And this is the first time this blackout thing is mentioned. Um, and it seems yeah. that at some point in the past, um, there was a mass blackout of technology. Um, yeah, it's it's actually all covered in the the short anime film. Uh, was it like 2022 blackout? Blackout, 2022, they, yeah. They released before uh, the movie came out. And it's, it's pretty much just that they... There, there were some replicant revolutionaries who detonated a nuclear weapon in um, low orbit, and the EMP knocked out all the computer records. Right. Um, um, and I initially thought that this was a, just a kind of a convenient plot device to explain why record keeping was so patchy around this particular topic. But I think it does have interesting parallels with Kay's own memory disorder <laughs> that he sort of like yeah. willingly indulges in um so this this society at large has problems with memory and even um in the upcoming scenes you get this kind of like it's it's like damaged memory cells is are the terms that are used um yeah to kind of describe this kind of um i think the the clerk uses the term uh, milky gray or something to describe the quality of the mm. data that he can retrieve um, mm -hmm. that it's like almost like a cataract you know it's um, yes it's yeah, really the, really great imagery in there but um, the 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 general intellect is sort of calcifying and mm, yeah yeah <laughs> and it's um, um, it's damaged like the, the the memory of the society at large is damaged uh, so Kay goes down into the deeper kind of vaults and he meets uh, this lady called love um, who is uh, Wallace's kind of right-hand woman in this world. She seems to be very high-ranking in the Wallace Corporation. Uh, she brings him down deeper into the kind of vaults to try and get, like, um, meaningful information on this person. Um, and it turns out that this um, this replicant is Rachel from the original film. Um, right. And they get a little bit of a playback of uh, Rachel's Voigt-Kampf test with Deckard. Yeah, and, and and I think, um, is it before this scene where we first get introduced with Love and she's selling replicants? That scene there where she's meeting with a woman and they're like, and then like the clerk is like, oh, you got to come see this? Yeah, I think, I think that's what happens, right? Then. Like, so she's in the middle of like making a large sale of replicants to some human. Um, so like she's at like the first time she's introduced she's like a slave dealer. She's a slave who is dealing slaves, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, so her position in this hierarchy is very clear based on that. Mm. What happens next? Oh, so Kay heads away, but then there's this like really interesting scene with um, with Wallace and Love. And this is the first time we see we see Wallace himself. And this, uh, I think we should prob probably pause to talk about the environment here, where it's like, I, th I think it's like almost an artificial diurnal cycle in the lighting, where... Because it's it's notable that like in the outside world in LA at large there just is no lighting the the sun doesn't shine through the clouds at all, but in this environment you've got like um, lamps that kind of rotate around and cast shadows in all sorts of different directions and it's kind of like a an artificial and highly sped up kind of day night cycle that's going on and it feels like the uh, the rich in this world are kind of rich enough that they can 
craft these kind of environments where they can en enjoy the passage of time much better than they can outside. Yes, and it, and except the irony here is that Wallace is blind. Wallace is blind. He's got these <laughs> like um, he's got these like uh, I don't know like weird sort of implants in his eyes, and he's got like you can kind of see implants in his neck as well, and he's like very clearly like some kind of techno wizard. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, um, and he seems to have like very direct control over technology. Um, yeah, and you know, just getting back to this set design here um, and the lighting, uh, another thing that that is very characteristic of this space is that there are um, a lot of ang very angular spaces, and also that there um, are a lot of stairs which is like, you know, there to sort of indicate that this is a place that is about sharp hierarchy, mm, right? Yeah. You move up and down. That's kind of how you navigate this space. Um, and uh, he, you know, he's in his, his inner sanctum, which is completely cut off from the outside world. This is like a pharaoh's, uh, uh, you know, space within a pyramid, right? Yeah, and there's, there's no windows, there's no there's no windows at all it, un, unlike the Tyrell corporation which had those huge windows that looked out on the sun um, this is a a place that is completely shut off from the outside world yeah definitely um, and so we've got this scene with with where a replicant is born she, she just like falls out of a plastic sack onto a concrete floor um, and Wallace attaches something to himself that allows him to like control these little drones, these tiny little sort of uh, weird little sort of black oval sort of things that um, then swarm around the the newborn woman, I suppose, um, and seem to be scanning her down. And it's very clear that like this is a medical examination that Wallace is able to perform. Like he somehow has the knowledge not only to create replicants but also to perform these kind of procedures and can do it with direct interface to uh, technology. Like he can use uh, drones as extension of his, as an extension of his body. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the way that he handles the replicant is like, he does an excellent job. Like Jared Leto does an excellent job in this scene of treating the replicant as not as a person. Like no, he, she's he, livestock. The, the actress that he's interacting with, he puts his hands onto her in the way that you would handle clay, right? Like he's talking about her being clay in this very like biblical sense. Mm. You know, he is this creator god, um, but like he also in his body language is expressing his relationship to her, um, which is, is is very very creepy and sort of uh, affecting. It's a pretty great performance, yeah. And he, he sort of, as, as this scene is playing out, he's ex explaining that every, every civilization has been built on a base of expendable labor and that we've, he even says it out loud, we've lost our taste for slavery. Um, that the replicant workforce has brought them to nine worlds and colonized them, these, these off-world colonies, but nine worlds aren't enough. Yeah, he says, like, they can be counted on a child's hands. Yeah, it's far it's too little. Good, very good line. It is, yeah, and yeah. It, it really, it scopes his ambition very much. Um, his, his amb he's driven entirely by this kind of greed and, and ambition, um, the desire to spread across the stars. And he wants to be able to, he, he wants to be able to breed replicants. That's why, like, so he ends up killing this, this new replicant that's been spawned because she's sterile. 
she's not what he wanted. She's not the experiment that he wanted. Um, and he feels that if he was able to breed replicants directly rather than manufacturing them, he would be able to, uh, you know, go into the trillions rather than merely millions of replicants. Um, yeah, and I mean, the thing that it's important about, to note about his character is that there is a certain kind of um, impotence about his character that he has created this new model that like, you know, love says, Oh, there's a new model you need to inspect. And that's why he comes out here to, to see this replicant. Right. Um, and it's another failure on his part, right? Like he's still, after all this trying cannot match Tyrell's genius. Yeah. Right? With all the capital because, in the world, he can't, yeah, he can't do it. Because the thing is that he, he invented this sort of like maggot, breeding system which was his 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 innovation but the sort of ip for replicants was something he purchased as a capitalist it was not something he invented so he kind of takes on the airs of tyrell he tries to appear as though he is that original genius but really he is just a you know, he's just kind of like a venture capitalist, right? Right? Like he he's just got money, and that's what has allowed him to do this. So yeah, um, there's he's kind of a fraud, you know? Yeah, definitely. Oh. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a very interesting interesting sort of character, and like these these motivations and kind of why he wants to do this are interesting as well. Um, so we leave him there and. Uh, we have a brief kind of scene where uh, Kay is just down on the street level and there's this, like, it's kind of what you'd expect. is like, there's ads everywhere. It's like, it's still a consumer culture, even in this kind of, like, horrifying austerity. Um, there's all sorts of hologram ads desperately, like, essentially begging people to buy their kind of product. Um, and we meet this woman, Mariette. Um, and this the, at the moment, this kind of relationship doesn't go very far. But um, Kay returns to the farm to kind of, it's not really clear what he wants to do. He sort of seems to go and just sit down on a on the sofa and kind of reflect. But when he does that, he spots that one of the keys on a piano is a little bit askew. And he kind of goes to inspect it and finds like a little box inside the piano. It's got a baby sock and a photograph of a woman holding a baby beside that tree outside. Um, it's quite a it, and this seems to be kind of gathering some kind of steam, like it's starting to affect him. So he goes outside to look at the tree and notices that there's a date carved into the, one of the roots, uh, 6 10, 21. And this really seems to affect him, that he's got this like vision of a child holding a wooden horse. Um, and he just sort of... it's There's this kind of progression over the film of like Kay starting to kind of crack and getting little it's a good it's a great performance as well like this kind of these little emotional bits um yeah yeah it, 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 the 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 sort of um desperate uh possibility that is worming its way into his mind yeah uh, is very well expressed uh, by by gosling in in this scene and uh just getting back to the cityscape a little bit um I think one thing that's interesting to note is that they stuck with the original Blade Runner continuity. 
So um, this is a world where the Soviet Union still exists. This oh, is, it is. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, this is a world where Pan Am and Atari still exist. <laughs> I love right? that bit. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting that like they were like, no, we're not going to update these corporate brands for what is happening in 2017. We're just going to go off of what was true in 1983, right? Yeah. Or you've 82. Got uh, enormous uh, hologram ads for Atari on the sides of these buildings it's pretty fantastic yeah yeah and uh and we don't get a lot of scenes in the city right like in this movie we get some but we don't get a whole lot and there, there's just so many callbacks to the original movie in in that scene there that you know we don't need to go into all of them that's no. just trivia but uh uh but yeah the the important thing is that that mariette is told by the resistance that she needs to seduce Kay, and he just kind of blows her off yeah he he's not interested at all because uh, she she hears the the tone from joy and she realizes oh no like you're not into what is not it? into real girls real, real girls yeah, yeah yeah um which is interesting because i think she turns out to be a replicant or something later maybe it's it's never really concretely nailed down what she is, and and I th I think the thing that's that's interesting about the city space when you think about the sort of broader questions about what kind of society this is, is that Marriott is like, she's a replicant, right? Like she's part of the resistance. She's a replicant, and it's kind of asserted that replicants are everywhere in LA. Now, whereas in the first movie, replicants were restricted to the off-world colonies. Yeah, right? there was like a legal was, change or something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's one of the things that's very unclear in this movie is what the lower class humans are doing in this world. Because like if we get back to the sort of like for futures discussion about automation, like, all the jobs could just be automated to be done by replicants. Um, so it's not really clear what sort of, like, the human proletariat is even doing in this world. Because that, le that, that spatial distinction is no longer maintained. And there's even that scene uh, when Kay is coming home, uh, just before we see Joy for the first time, where he's, like, being harassed by the humans um, in his apartment building. And it, it kind of seems to impl imply that, like, the humans that are here have been, like, totally immiserated by the extension of uh, replicant labor to Earth, right? Um, so, yeah, it kind of gets back to that sort of, like, exterminist uh, scenario that we were talking about before on, uh, on the Four Futures cast. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not really explained at all, like... Um what the kind of this this is a it, it's a sort of a theme in, in the kind of labor relation the kind of relation between capital the state and and labor particularly with the replicants being uh essentially a kind of like a perfected form of production where they are they are the replicants are both the means of production and the labor like they're one yeah. and the same um but it, it leaves that question open of like what what did the human proletariat do um it's not it's not expanded upon very much. It's even the case that like the replicants are like basically educated and totally obedient, right? Like they combined like that dichotomy in the capital labor relation where like 
if workers become educated, they may be less obedient. It doesn't apply to replicants. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's not like there's it's not like there's like a white like it's kind of implied like when you go to the police station that there are still humans that have sort of like white collar jobs, but like. It's not nece- it's not really that they're necessary, it's more that the humans are just there to enforce order, right? Seemingly, yeah. Um yeah. it gets interesting when you consider like uh love and her her sort of thing, because like she's probably not compensated for her labor at all. Um but she does she is at the level of skill where you'd be talking like at least a million dollars a year in a paycheck for, you know, somebody doing that kind of job in the contemporary society. Oh, easily, because she's, like, what? She's, like, a, a secretary, corporate manager, mm. uh, assassin, um, <laughs> All uh, like, button, drone operations specialist, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> receptionist, and, like, I don't know. It's not, it's not really, like, said whether she is doing sex work for Wallace or not, but it's totally imaginable that Seemingly, she is. yeah. Yeah, yeah so, like... And and so it's just like she she does so many jobs, right? And like yeah, she's she's obviously in a position of great privilege and has access to all kinds of material things, but she's certainly not like compensated to the degree of her what her labor would uh, uh, suggest. Mm. So to kind of pick back up on the plot, um, Kay has a discussion with Joshi where. It becomes very clear that he he has implanted memories and he knows this, uh, and that one of his one of his big memories is of uh, being a child in this kind of like strange kind of industrial setting, and some bullies trying to steal a little wooden toy horse off of him, and then he he runs and he hides the horse in in a furnace in like a in a pile of ash in a disused furnace in this kind of environment, and he gets the shit beat out of him and such. But that's his he he knows that that's not real. He knows that that's an implanted memory, but that's also the same that's the same memory that was triggered when he saw the date carved into the tree. Um, so he goes to the uh, police station to look at some records to kind of track down children born well, on this but date. Th- th- there's, there's a really important scene here, right, between him and Joshi, where she orders him to tell her she does about this memory and he's like this is this is this isn't my memory like i don't want to tell you about this you know he doesn't say that but like that's implied by mm. their interaction and he does say it's not his memory but he it, it's it's not like he's he's talking back to her directly uh but she just basically like orders him to tell her as a way of like displaying her domination over him and he goes through this reciting of the memory and we have the whole flashback and everything and she basically suggests to him that he should sleep with her yeah she asks like they're they're drinking and she asks what what happens if we finish that bottle or something yeah 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 and the, the gosling's body language in this scene is very like it's not relaxed at all it's like he's at attention right he's He's at the whim of his master. And yet, when she makes this offer of sex, he turns her down. And this is the first this is the first time that he is disobeying an order, right? But the, the I think the the offer of sex isn't phrased as an order. It's a it's phrased as a question. Like what happens if we finish that bottle of vodka? 
Yeah, but I, I okay, but there there's still a distinction between what he does and what you would expect someone like Joy to do. Sure, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is to understand the desire of the master and seek to please the master. Yeah. And he doesn't do that. He do, he 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 puts his own preferences in front of Joshi's preferences. And is that that's probably the first time we see him do that? Um, yes, on screen. And, and it shows that like this whole thing about the replicants being perfectly obedient is actually not true, right? Yeah, it it very much. Um, there's this sort of thing that like I think as we mentioned earlier, the the social structure on which this whole world is built is very flimsy. And a lot of the accepted truths and axioms are probably not actually true. Um, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's not true that they're actually perfectly obedient. It's not true that they're not people. It's not true, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a lot about this world that's where the the, uh, the dominant ideology is simply wrong in its kind of assertions. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, he goes to the archives. Yeah, he goes to the archives and he drags out some um, info about uh, children born on that date. And there's a thing about there being two children with identical DNA, a boy and a girl born on that date, uh, six, ten, twenty one. He says this is impossible because one of them has to be a fake. But they do point to an orphanage. And, and just the, the technology there is just really cool. Just wanted to call that out. Oh, yeah. That, like. That that the machine he's interacting with is so reminiscent of the computers that you see in the original movie, and they did such a great job of maintaining that sort of like vaguely analog feel to all the computers while still like updating them. Yeah, very um, much so. Um, and like the verbal commands that that you know Deckard makes in the first movie are very much like maintained in in this movie in the computer interactions. Um, and, and the other thing to note is that Joy is watching this data analysis he's doing with with him. Yeah, she's there with him. It's really, the, the machinery is very interesting, yeah, because it's like, I think um, the kind of set design and environments have this theme of like retrofitting and mm -hmm. of combining technologies from different eras. So like Kay's own like vehicle looks like it was manufactured probably 30 or 40 years prior to to that date it's really shitty yeah. old cop tech um and then you've got the the brand new stuff in the labs and then you've got this kind of laboratory here where it seems to be a mixed thing where the display unit is partially analog but it seems to be wired up to like an ai unit that can respond to verbal commands so it's kind of like and it's all speaking in japanese yeah, it is. That's right. So it's probably repurposed and um, repurposed and recycled and retrofitted. Uh, all this technology is going to, which it's, it's again an austere sort of aesthetic um, where only the very richest have the uh, luxury of being able to retool their environments fully. Most people or most institutions, including the LAPD, which you would think would be well financed in this kind of environment, um, even they have to scrape by with, you know, Imagine, I mean, most people don't even have to imagine, like I'm sure we've seen in our workplaces the kind of thing of like dragging out a computer from the 1980s to try and like plug it into a modern network to kind of get something useful off of it. Uh, but that's very much the theme here. Yeah. And it almost seems like what he's reading is like a kind of uh, microfiche. Yeah, um, it's scrolling by yeah. in that kind of way. Like, so maybe like it was retained through the blackout because it was a microfiche. It's not entirely clear, but that makes um, sense. Yeah, I like that. Um, 
But anyway, they head towards this orphanage, which this really great sort of flyover scene of this uh, seawall and just the, the pounding waves against this thing. Like, it's very clear that the city would otherwise be underwater if this thing wasn't here. But what's beyond the wall is striking, where it's... Uh, San Diego is simply in ruins. Like, it is it is in the water and is completely flattened um, and has become like a dumping ground on top of that kind of ruin. Yeah, just unimaginable amounts of trash being dumped here. Um, yeah. Just an ocean of garbage. Um, even though, like, you know, our, our actual ocean is becoming an ocean of garbage. Yeah. This is like, <laughs> as far as you can see, you know, just trash everywhere. Um, trash and salt water just everywhere. Yeah, and and, and definitely, like, a, it's, it's certainly, like, a reference to, like, those parts of China where, like, you know, large-scale but very uh, low-skill, low-capital-intensity uh electronics recycling happens right like that i think that must have been the inspiration for um this location oh i'd imagine so yeah it's uh it's certainly a nod to the global south that has in our in our current era has to deal with a lot of the fallout from our kind of production yeah and there's this is kind of thing where uh his the, the car is brought down by scavengers um as the scavengers are trying to get pull him out of the car you get these just like the whistling of missiles dropping onto these uh, these uh, these scavengers, and it's um, it's love uh, like remotely controlling a drone um, that's just dropping bombs all over the place while she's getting like a manicure from a replicant yeah. in her in her office. So yeah, just demonstrating her power, right? Like she's able to kill people at the same time she has another replicant doing her nails. Yeah, like, this and is... this is again a theme of like control and power and the projection of power through technology. Um, there's there's such an enormous differential between uh, the position Love is in and these like scavengers. Um, it's huge. Yeah, and this is like you know one hundred percent like a clear reference to like american drone strikes in the global south right like that's what's going on like this this area of san diego is like a, just a sort of mishmash combination of different aspects of the global south and of like the people who today are on the exterior or are subordinated in the border control system that we have yeah right? yeah like certainly. They, they aren't able to get inside the wall to have even that like meager proletarian existence that you see um people like k or k's uh, apartment uh building members uh have this is this is the lowest of the low the people who live out here yeah this this is living amongst scrap metal and having a very angry ocean pounding against uh, your house constantly <laughs> this is not good but so k ends up at the orphanage which is in this kind of like like an upturned uh, satellite dish, like a radio satellite kind of kind of thing, um, is kind of built into the hull of this thing. And the guy that runs the place doesn't really have any information for him, but like it becomes clear this is actually the same place from Kay's memory. It's this kind of industrial setting um, with lots of walkways and railings. Um, and after dispensing with the the guy who who can't really tell him anything about the kids. Um, Kay kind of like slowly works his way down into the bowels of this place and pauses in front of a furnace and reaches in and finds 
the little wooden horse from his memory. <laughs> yeah, and and the important thing to note about the interaction with this like Fagin character that uh, he meets uh, is that he threatens him to get information, but like actually the information about the child he's looking for has been ripped out of his record book. Oh yeah, that's that's that, that's and, gone already. Yeah. Yeah. So that like this is a clue that. Someone's been interfering, and it was probably the replicant resistance, right? Yeah, probably. And there's this. This sort of sets up a theme of. Um, it's it's not a very strong theme, but it does it does get touched upon a few times. The the weaponization of forgetting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a parallel to the memories, the memory thing, like that. In more than one instance, um, the loss of information or the forgetting of memories is used as a weapon to, or or at least as a defense against some threat yeah especially going back to the blackout right like the idea behind the blackout is that they purge the records and then because they purge the records it wouldn't be clear who was a replicant and who wasn't anymore so they couldn't hunt down the replicants um so this is like a kind of counter power right that that if you if you can if you can destroy the the system, uh, sorry, the um, systemic or institutional memory of powerful uh, organizations, then they aren't able to surveil you as easily or control you as easily. Yeah, definitely. Um, but like Kay is having the opposite problem at this point in the plot, where he's um, he's flooded with a memory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's got a real real problem with this. What what appears to be that this this memory is real, and the the wooden horse has that same date carved into the bottom of it, uh, six ten twenty one. So th- this is like on it, it it can't be ignored. This this is very serious linkage, and it like mm-hmm. heavily implies that he's he's this child. This, and he's uh, pretty shaken by this. Very shaken, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. And he speaks to Joy about it, and she she's kind of thrilled. Um, and she says he's he's a real boy now, and uh, she insists that he have a real name, and she starts calling him Joe. Um, but he decides to go and visit a a memory maker, uh, this this character Anna Staline, who um, has has a little facility seemingly out on the edge of town. This is a really striking kind of scene as well, where um, it goes into this kind of environment where it's like an isolation chamber that Anna lives inside of. Um, and she explains that uh, it's because of a, a, a compromised immune system that she kind of has been isolated in here since childhood. But the striking thing here is that, like, she has this kind of little device that will conjure up holograms in this environment. It's a very cold and sterile environment, but she has total control over it like or total mm-hmm. control over the projections that are inside of it the scene opens with her having this like lush jungle scape uh, that she can play with and she's like fiddling with the dimensions of a beetle on a leaf uh, she's got this like ability to manipulate these um these projections directly and i think it's, it's kind of interesting that like she's very much the she's almost what the term digital artisan was made to describe like Yes, she has total control over this digital technology, um, and it's it's, it's very hands on, very hands on. Yeah, and it, this is her trade. This is what she does for a living. She constructs memories um, to be implanted in replicants. Yeah, and I, I think uh, on the Waypoint podcast about this, they were comparing her to a game designer, and I think that's that's very uh, apt comparison there, particularly with her like kind of basically dragging sliders to change like. 
the ratio of head size to torso size in a, in a beetle and like yeah. <laughs> really tweaking animations, you know, um, she, sp- she spends most of her time tweaking these animations. Um, but she explains to Kay that like she gives replicants these memories so that they'll have meaningful human responses. And again, this sort of like pretense that replicants aren't supposed to be real people, but the authenticity is, de- is still desirable. Like we want them to be, we don't want to consider them to be people, but we want them to have all the authentic responses that people would have. Um, again, like a contradiction and a tension inside of this ideology. Um, and she also explains that it's illegal to use real memories for this purpose. Yes. Um, and it's she there's a conversation about, like, why is she so good at this job? Um, and it's because she's been shut off from the outside world. So her imagination about the outside world is accentuated. Um, and so it's like she's producing simulacra based on simulacra she's seen about the outside world. Yeah, right. It's, it's, um, double filtered, um, projections of projections and such because like she she while she's explaining that she's crafting like a birthday scene for a child and it's it's almost like out something out of a movie like it's that classic kind of children huddled around a cake and all the expressions of joy and such and like you can kind of tell that like she's seen that in movies and then thinks that's exactly what that scene is supposed to play out like yeah and it's it's important to note like the lighting in this scene is very different from the rest of the movie it's very bright um, and not in a sort of sinister way that uh you see in wallace's building Mm. right um and it's not the same as the lighting you see in the baseline test which is also very bright right Uh, there's a kind of softness to it there's a certain homely warmth yeah certainly yeah, and and and, and like her, uh, the, her clothing is very soft as well. Um, and her hair hairstyle is is this kind of like wavy uh, thing to it. So she has this very sort of like ethereal look to her. She's like she's like the most um, uh, what would you say? Like a kind of artistic bohemian sort of person. That's yeah, that's true. But they're they're it's it's like. She is the most sort of non-threatening person <laughs> in this movie. Like it's it's like there's a softness to her that is very much at odds with the rest of this world. That shows how isolated she is, um, and it also makes her the most sort of sympathetic character that we run into so far. Um, which is it's really interesting because like you mentioned that there's this kind of like bohemian characteristic to her and one of the things that we associate with that you know with this kind of artisanal um bespoke sort of production is authenticity but she's producing pure simulacra and she's existing in this extremely sterile environment so there, there's there's a lot going on in this scene about appearances <laughs> and deception. Yeah, um, that yeah. is is really really well put together, um, like all the way up from like the lighting to the set design to the the costume design to the the um, uh, hairdressing to like everything you see in here. Um, it is exquisite. Yeah, it's very well assembled. Um, and I think while, while we're on the topic of environments and set design, um, and I think you mentioned the kind of uh, the absence of threat here, um, 
I've kind of noticed there's there's a thing there's a kind of a thing about the relationship from the characters to their environments in that K exists in a very chaotic and hostile environment, uh, one which he, I don't think he could ever reasonably expect to feel any kind of safety. Whereas Wallace exists in a very safe and controlled environment. Like he, he's definitely safe and he has direct control over the, the whole environment. That's broadly true of Anna as well, with the kind of caveat that like she's re- refi- she's restricted to this environment. Uh, she can't leave Yeah, because it. we... We see later in the movie that Wallace is able to easily go into space to go to the off-world colonies, right? Like, he has mobility, but for whatever reason, he has chosen to be here on Earth. Um, it's 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 very... Um, it, it almost feels like he's chosen to be on Earth because he wants to be close to the legacy of Tyrell. He's, he's, he's always imitating Tyrell, um, like in his the way his headquarters are constructed and what he's doing. Um, so I think I think that might be what is is binding him to Earth instead of him just being, you know, off in space doing his thing out there. Cause that, that does seem more in line with his what you would expect of that character to um, mm-hmm. go off gallivanting in the uh, in the stars. Um but so the, the end of this scene is where Anna kind of does a brain scan of Kay and, like, checks the memory to see if it's real. Um, mm. And this plays out in a pretty fun way where there's just, like, a, a scanning device pointing at his head. And he just sort of sits there in silence for 10 or 15 seconds. And th- th- there's music, of course. There's, like, tiny little tension building uh, sting. But um, at the end of it, Anna cries and she says, yeah, it's real. And then Kay kind of snaps, like... And he, he mutters a few times, I know it's real, I know it's real, I know it's real, and then just explodes. Yeah, this is the point uh, of, of uh, breakage for him. Like, they were saying in the in the Waypoint podcast that there's like three acts to this movie, and this is like the end of the first act, right? This is the climax and end of the first act. Is like, Kay has come to the knowledge that he has a real memory, and he suspects that it is his Right. Um, And this is very, very disturbing to him because he can no longer maintain the attitude of disavowal that has allowed him to function in this horrific capitalist society that he lives in. Um, But uh, the the other important thing to think about is is Anna's reaction. It's real. And why is she crying Right. This is a very, very, very important question here in this movie. And we'll, we'll see as we go through it, like the different perspectives on why it might be that she, she's crying about this. Mm. Yeah. And um, Kay is, is so affected by this that he, he well, he, he's called in for a baseline test and fails like spectacularly fails the the baseline. Yeah, um, he's, he's he's delayed in his responses all the way through the mm, test. Yeah, the rhythm is way off. Um, he's not even close to the baseline, um, which, as you said, he he can't keep up the pretense anymore. He he just can't um, can't do it. It's, he's 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 finally got real sort of emotional response now, and um, it's unacceptable. So he's he's brought up to Joshi's office. Um, he. He tells her that he's taken care of it. That like, there's no details. Like he just says it's it's done. It's it's taken care of. Um, she breathes a sigh of relief, saying that uh, essentially he's just saved the world from like 
the possibility of total social collapse. And and it's it's like this is such a weird scene mm. because she knows he's off his baseline, but she just takes his word for it. As if the word of somebody, a replicant who was off their baseline, would be worth anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so like you can, you could imagine that she would just take his word for it when he says that he killed the child because she would expect that replicants would be totally obedient to her. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's the expectation. However, he's off his baseline, so there's no reason why she should believe that. Right. And she it's clear in later scenes that she does believe it. It's not bullshit. Like she actually thinks the child is dead. So the only way I can think of like squaring this is that she thinks Kay is off his baseline because he killed the child. And that was very traumatic because he said like, you know, he said in the earlier scene with her that like, oh, I've never retired someone that was born before. Right. So. Maybe she's like, oh, well, he's just very upset because he expressed reservations about doing this in the past. I mean, that's one way I can see it, unless there's some other thing going on here that I'm not seeing. Um, I think it's probably that combined with um, she has a very definite fondness for him anyway. Um, she, she kind of phrases it that, like, she can get him out of the station alive for now, but your next baseline test is on you. I think she knows that he's doomed anyway. Um, and she kind of let, lets him off the hook for a while because why not? And I, I think there might also be just an element of like, she genuinely buys into the ideology of this society. Like she, she does actually expect him to be obedient. Like she, the, 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 that kind of uh, buy-in has maybe actually blinded her to the possibility that like he could actually rebel, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, it might just be a matter of that she has feelings for him in some sense and she is probably so confident of the ability of the blade runners to track down rogue replicants that she mm. thinks it's not really a big issue because like somebody's going to retire him one way or the other right like why not give him this moment to leave and maybe she'll feel a little bit better about having ordered him to murder a child and you know sent him on his way so yeah it's it's a little bit complicated what's going on in this scene and it's not really clear what her motivations are mm. but we can we can sort of suppose what they might be um you know which is true for a lot of the characters um so the the next major scene in the film is this kind of quite strange uh sex scene between uh k mariette and joy where oh boy joy has invited mariette <laughs> over to the house um so that and like it, it plays out in this really strange way where like joy kind of like stands over mariette and kind of synchronizes mostly with her body um yes i don't know i'm not i'm not wild about the scene <laughs> you know this scene so this scene is obviously a um repetition of the theme we saw in the first scene of joy right where she overlays the food over the the protein sludge, right? She's overlaying herself over the uh, sex worker, the protein uh, sludge, Mariette. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's what the analogy is going for there. That's what the analogy is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what the analogy is. And it's, there's so much going on in this scene. So this scene is, an, is 100% a callback to her, right? 
This is a scene that is like verbatim reproduced from her in a way, right? Where there is a scene in her where the, the artificial intelligence hires a sex worker to do the same thing for the main the main character. And that is a scene of uh it's a it's a it's a decisive inflection point in the movie where there is a distance introduced between the protagonist and uh, the the artificial intelligence where he he can't handle what is going on right he gets very upset and that's that's where the, they those two characters start to diverge in the plot right yeah uh, they introduce a sort of level of indirection because like on, until that point in in her the the AI is a voice in his head essentially um, they have a mm-hmm. very direct connection and then they sort of introduce this intermediary layer. Um, and then it sort of diverges from there. Yeah, and 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 it it it, it leads to the the AI in that movie uh, uh, going in a completely different direction from Joy, right? This like they're like it's it's this it's total divergence. Like up until this point, they are very similar characters, but the, after this point, they're going to go in completely different directions. Mm. Like diametrically opposed directions and the important thing i think there's like uh there's so much going on in the scene but i think one thing that's a note is that mariette is a lot more present in the movie as a character than the sex worker is in her like the character the the character in her is just a prop right but the, the movie, like the, the, the cinematography and the sort of way this scene is established in Blade Runner is focusing very intently on the face of Mariette and on the difference between her and Joy, mm, yeah. right? That these are not, they're, they're not really the same thing and they don't mesh particularly well together, right? Mm. Um, and, and yet... Uh, so there, like, there are people who have seen this scene and they, they think it is a positive scene in the sense that like it, in the, in the sense that Mariette as a sex worker is providing an emotional service that is positive for Kay because he's gone through this enormous amount of emotional trauma and she is allowing him to have intimacy with the woman that he loves who is incorporeal but nevertheless has a real emotional connection to him right mm-hmm. like that that is a that is a positive that is a read of this scene as a positive thing uh but what was your what was your reaction to this scene i don't know uh, it, it could have uh, just been inserted for the sake of having a sex scene or like see i i don't think i don't think the scene was necessary at all to the character development mm-hmm. um it could have been i think it Partly could be there just to have an excuse for Mariette to plant a tracker on Kay's coat. Um, Mm -hmm. The producers could have felt that this um, inability for Kay and Joy to physically interact needed to be addressed, which I don't think it did. Um, And then there's the usual Hollywood thing of, oh, we got to have a bit of skin. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels like a little bit of it. It sticks out a little bit from the film. There's that bit where they cut away to like a flyover shot of like coming up to a billboard and then cut back to the, like the the morning after. And it mm-hmm. 
it feels a little bit like script surgery, like a little bit careless in a way. It's it's one of the very few parts of the film that doesn't feel entirely well designed. Mm-hmm. I, I I took it in the kind of I suppose charitable light that like Joy did genuinely want to kind of bridge this gap to Kay, um, but I I didn't really get um I didn't get a very strong vibe of that being terribly successful. Like afterwards, Kay and Joy don't seem to be appreciably closer than they were like they're they, they were close anyway you know um i don't know like it's it's really it's really hard because like the there's these sort of like complex sort of relations and the kind of like the service relation between mariette as the sex worker and this kind of like the very strong implication that the fulfillment of a heterosexual sex act is kind of the ultimate validation of rom- romance or something Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not not wild about it. Yeah, that that it that is sort of a convention of Hollywood script writing um, or romantic fiction that this scene does seem to play into. Yeah, um, like this is a plot beat we need to hit, which is what you're kind of getting. To, yeah, you know, getting that I think to. it was like partially that there was the need for Mariette to plant the tracker somehow. And secondly, that, or maybe even primarily, that other need for like we've we've got to have this thing in the film, um, right? Yeah. So for me, I found it. I wasn't really thinking about the scene in terms of like the overall plot structure or the um, like the the premises and conventions of this kind of scene in in movies. I mean, the the the, the connection to her was like instantly popping into my head, right? So like, yeah. I've seen the scene before. Uh, but it plays out the opposite way, right? Like, they they do have sex, right? In, instead of in her, where it's like, I, he's like, I can't handle this, right? Um, and I think, like, for me, like, yeah, like, in this scene, Gosling seems uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, he this does. Is so, <laughs> this, is something that, this is something that Joy is doing. She's expressing her agency in making this happen because Gosling's like K is like he goes along with it but it's not really he's not that into it like he 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 has like this very conflicted sort of body language in the way that he's engaging in the scene um in a way it's kind of the reverse of the sex scene from the original Blade Runner where uh uh, Rachel shows hesitation and Deckard is the one who is initiating. And and I think uh, for myself, I was really uncomfortable in this scene um, because like, I think it's just the, the character of Joy, it, 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 it's, it's very easy to see what is attractive about her as a commodity, you know, mm-hmm. that she can do all this emotional labor for you, but you can just turn her off with a button and you don't really have to experience like the danger and um, vulnerability of having an actual relationship with a human being, right? And that is something that Kay does at least once in the film is he Mm -hmm. just sort of switches her off, and then there's that little kind of, um, I don't know, that spinner thing that happens as she disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and 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 I mean, it, like I mean, I live in Japan, so it really makes me think about like all of like the sort of dating simulators and visual novels and all all that kind of thing in Japanese culture, which are like these kinds of relationship surrogates that are similar to joy, right? Um, and I even saw like I don't know if this is gospel truth or not like I, I might have been misunderstanding the situation but when I was at Tokyo Game Show earlier this year um, there was a booth that was set up by Konami to promote their mobile version of the dating simulator Love Plus mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't entirely sure what was going on there but it seemed like they had booths set up where you could demo the game and they had uh, girls hired to go and play the game with you (laughs) in this little booth. So it's like this setting of like real intimacy that is like, it's like suggestive of like sex work and like, and like, it's very, very similar to this scene, right? (laughs) That like you're interacting with this virtual feminine personality who is like supposed to do this emotional labor for you but you also have like an uh, a woman there who is also doing emotional labor <laughs> for you and like facilitating Jesus. your fantasy yeah um so it, it's oh boy yeah like I, that, up, that was also really going through my head at that time um yeah because like when you when you go to these like big game conventions the amount of like like just the the extent to which women are used to sell things and their bodies are used and their 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 emotional labor and their sort of pleasantness is used their sexiness is used to to push these products um is very very in your face and yeah this this just totally made me think of that so much um so like it's it's really one of those things where it's like I know this is really gross and weird but as like this like you know coming from this like hetero male subject position i can like understand why this is attractive too mm, yeah. right like it's like it's really like i had i felt like i was in k's position of having these two things in my mind at the same time mm, yeah it's like on the one hand like this is attractive on the other hand, it's horrifying, right? <laughs> it's horrifying, and, but I'm kind of into it. <laughs> um, and so, like, I think the scene for me was effective, but not the wrong positive. kind of effective. <laughs> yeah, like it was. It was like this is like this is the kind of thing I like go to cyberpunk for in terms of like its sort of alterity and like weirdness, right? And like like doing things with sexuality that are very uncomfortable and strange yeah sure um so i like i thought that it was really really interesting that like yeah they did the same scene from her but they played it the opposite way whether it's totally successful or whether like i don't think it was necessary in the movie you're right like it doesn't it it doesn't um it doesn't provide any additional motivation to the plot that uh, Kay could not get from having a conversation with Joy, right? But it does say something about... Th- th- I guess the thing that is important here is that it is an expression of Joy's agency. Yes, true. In a way that 
talking to Kate in the way that she did with the previous domestic scene would not be. Because, again, like, she is the one who is pushing this on him. I suppose also, like, I mean, it, this this is a it's a film full of uncomfortable and kind of horrific uh, scenes and imagery. Um, yeah. This this one stands out because it's sexual in nature, but it, it, it is, right. I think, thematically consistent with the vague horror and kind of awfulness of this setting. <laughs> yeah, and that that's just, like, doubled down on in the subsequent scene where you have the 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 you know like the wife and the prostitute who have been one person in a sort of uncomfortable union mm. in the previous scene are separated from each other and are ha- sort of having this like catty dialogue about who's really in control like on the in the waypoint discussion of this they were talking about how it's kind of like there are these two women who are existing for the male gaze mm-hmm. and they're ex- they're they're fighting over Kay's desire and that that is kind of implied in the movie because like it sort of seems like in the first scene that Marietta is introduced that she she is attractive to Kay on some level it's it's kind of implied in the in the body language but it's also kind of a weird thing where there's just that thing where Kay is very like hesitant and he's not clearly into this whole experience right so it feels like, yes, they are competing for, like, that sort of male attention, but at the same time, there's also a kind of politics of, like, bodily control or independence that is happening between these two characters, and, like, they clearly do not like each other. Yeah, they, definitely. Like, this merger that has happened was not a happy merger. No. Um, And so... Uh boy, yeah, it, it's <laughs> there's so much going on in this scene in terms of just like desire and representation and sexuality that is really hard to unpack, but um definitely like as far as I could tell, like that subsequent scene after the sex scene frames it in a very negative one. It does. Right. Yeah, yeah. They um they sort of they they pass on very bad terms. Um, and, and and Joyce sees that she has uh, that Mariette has put the tracking device in Kay's jacket. Does she see it? Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. And so she, she's like, you know, I see what you're doing, and that's part of like the whole fight that they have, right? Right. But she doesn't tell she doesn't tell Kay about it. Right. That was Again, the thing. That's a, yeah, I couldn't remember. That's whether... another expression of her agency in a way, right? And 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 finally, there's the whole thing where she decides to be like downloaded into the emanator. Yeah. So they're gonna head out, and um, Joy tells Kate to like download her fully into the emanator and delete her from the console, so that uh, if the goons come around, they won't be able to recover her memories from there. Um, and it'll make her it'll make her mortal essentially. Like she can be can be killed now. And she she even says like a real girl. So she's she's become. Like a real person, she's become mortal, kind of um, in a parallel with how uh, Kay has become more more of a person through having his kind of emotional awakening. Uh, but she says she tells him to um, break the antenna uh, so that they can't be tracked. And as soon as that happens, the shot cuts away to Love in the Wallace headquarters, who is is tracking them. And as soon as the signal goes dead, she bolts for the door. Yes, uh, and and I think the important thing about joy deciding to be mortal um and this establishing her her humanity is that it's like kind of like the first um 
Well, maybe the second instance we see in this movie, aside from the uh, Morton character at the beginning, of, like, sacrifice as a demonstration of your humanity, right? And and this, this kind of gets back to uh, Hegel's uh, master-slave dialectic, right? Where Hegel says that, like, the master establishes dominance because they are willing to risk everything to be dominant, right? That they, they establish their power uh, because they're willing to risk something. They're willing to sacrifice something. They're willing to establish meaning by putting something at stake. And, you know, that changes in the whole dialectic because, like, the master's lazy and they don't actually learn or do much of anything once they're the master, and this, the slave gets all their experience and, like, learns things and becomes smarter and, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, and so is actually able to develop into a, like, more fully formed person. But nevertheless, there is that thing about staking your life on something and that being a mark of personhood, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, so, for, so for Joy, it's it's a matter of staking her life on her love for Kay. And, and, and you know, this is you know, definitely not great, right? That the way she achieves her personhood is to act as a love object for a man. Yeah, and she is then forever kind of anchored to this uh, very fragile piece of hardware, which is going to be carried on Kay's person. Like, even in the best possible scenario, she is just anchored to him instead of being anchored to the apartment. Right, and, and, you know, it just goes through the thing in this movie where female characters are, you know, not in great positions, right? Like, these, this does not, this is, this, like, the, uh, with the exception of, you know, a couple characters, generally the, the, the women in this movie are not really sort of given that protagonist role or explored the the interior of their psychology is not explored in the same way that the male characters get no Um, definitely not no yeah so it's a it's a uh well what you think about that we'll have to talk about at the end of the discussion (laughs) i guess (laughs) (laughs) when we cap everything up but yeah let's let's carry on here Hey everyone, Shane here. As you can probably tell by this episode's title and its running time, this recording session went way too long, and we had to split the episode up into two separate episodes. So join us again in two weeks where we pick up our analysis of Blade Runner 2049. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod, you can find us on Facebook at General Intellect Unit, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on all of the podcasting apps. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks.